Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Solving the Puzzle with Dr. Datis Karazian, informing you about evidence-based strategies for autoimmune disease, brain health issues, Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, gut health problems, and many other chronic health conditions. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at drknews.com. Hey everyone, today we're going to talk about the blood-brain barrier and what we call leaky brain. And when you look at healthcare and you look at physiological pathways, you can have different barriers break down. So you can have the gut barrier break down, that's called leaky gut. You can have the blood-brain barrier break down, people using the slang term uh, leaky brain. You can have the lung epithelium barrier breakdown. Some people use the term leaky lung. We're going to be going over each of these different barrier system breakdowns um, with uh, these uh, talks that we do uh, every week. But uh, today's talk is really, really about the blood-brain barrier and the so-called concept of, of leaky brain. Now, when people hear the word leaky brain, you know, it sounds funny, it sounds weird, and it's the same thing that happened when people started to use the term leaky gut. But for the most part, when we use the term leaky brain, what we're referring to is that the blood-brain barrier has become permeable. And this is a physiological response that can happen, and it's really an established mechanism in the fields of neuroimmunology of how uh, infections get into the brain and how different pathogen and environmental triggers can activate neuroinflammation, neurodegeneration in the brain. So what I wanna do before I take questions is like in the first 15 to 20 minutes, I wanna explain to you like what is the blood-brain barrier, what are the symptoms that take place when the blood-brain barrier breaks down? What lab tests are used to determine breakdown of the blood-brain barrier? What are causes uh, that? What are, what are mechanisms that can cause the blood-brain barrier to break down um, from lifestyle, from environmental factors, um, from disease processes? And then, what are some nutraceuticals and lifestyle factors you can do to improve the blood-brain barrier? And I also talk a lot about the blood-brain barrier in my uh, book called Why Do I Still Have, uh, or Why Isn't My Brain uh, Working? Um, and I have some information about uh, the blood-brain barrier and neuroinflammation, neuroautoimmunity on my website called uh, com. So let's first talk about what the blood-brain barrier is. So for the most part, the blood-brain barrier is simply um, blood vessels and cells uh, called astrocytes that create a barrier to basically keep things from blood, from systemic circulation, away from the brain. And this blood-brain barrier has little transport mechanisms for certain the chemicals and, and different uh, compounds and cell messengers to cross that can cross through a passive and an active transport system. But there are times when this blood-brain barrier opens up and really sets up the stage for different environmental triggers. For example, if you have different um, chemicals in your bloodstream, they can start to get into the brain. If you have certain pathogens, uh, they can get into the brain. If you have any circulating antibodies, they can then cross the brain, the blood-brain barrier get into the brain, and then activate immune cells in the brain called microglia, which then sets up the stage for significant uh, uh, brain inflammation and neurodegeneration and so forth. So there's been, you know, when we look at the healthcare system, there was this long period of time where um, people started to understand and accept that the gut barrier can become permeable. And I think we're at the point now that we have several thousand papers published in the peer-reviewed literature of intestinal permeability, and they've been able to show uh, causes of disease development with intestinal permeability, like autoimmune diseases and chronic inflammation and lots of papers on what's called endotoxemia that can cause dysfunction um, throughout the body, including the brain, the cardiovascular system, organ systems with leaky gut. And the blood-brain barrier model is also starting to get more attention over time. And I think it'll just be a matter of time where people start using the term um, leaky brain as well. Now, with leaky gut syndrome, we know when people start to have their intestinal tight junctions uh, break up, they get uh, 
reactions to food proteins and they start to get inflammation and swelling and different symptoms throughout their body. So one of the key things is that when the blood-brain barrier breaks down, the key thing that happens and the key symptom people start to develop are symptoms associated with brain inflammation and neuroinflammation. So let's talk about that for a second. When you look at neuroinflammation, neuroinflammation basically means the cells in the brain that modulate the immune response are overactivated. And these cells in the brain are called microglia. And if the blood-brain barrier becomes permeable, then proteins and triggers for this immune system, uh, whether they're food proteins, whether they're pathogens, whether they're other inflammatory mediators and blood circuit and circulation, all start to activate the brain and the brain basically becomes more inflamed. And there are more inflammatory mediators circulating around neurons and synapses when there's a neuroinflammatory state. And when this happens, one of the main symptoms that takes place is most people start to complain of what they call brain fog. And what that means basically is there's something interfering with normal and ideal synapses. And that's really uh, what's happening when people are trying to get to a thought or to an action and they just can't do it. Or they're trying to do some kind of motor coordination activity, like, I don't know, hitting a, hitting a tennis ball or whatever they may be doing. They just find it difficult to do more than usual. So the key thing about neuroinflammation is that one of the, you know, the key things that it does is that it interferes with uh, ideal synaptic activity. And it slows down what's called nerve conduction speed, how fast neurons synapse. So what people typically notice when their brains are inflamed is that everything just becomes less efficient. They can still do things, but motor tasks become less efficient, like coordinated uh, activities using your muscles, and cognitive tasks become less efficient. And um, that's the key feature of, of, of impaired nerve conductance. Now, the other part of this is that when there's inflammation in the brain, the inflammatory response uh, uncouples cells in the brain called mitochondria, and that impacts brain endurance. So the key feature that happens when there's lots of inflammation in the brain is the brain just gets really fatigued really quickly. So the person starts to have increased expressions of neuroinflammation, what they may notice is that um, they can't read as long as they used to. They can't drive as long as they used to. So their overall capacity to do tasks uh, and the time and the endurance they have is just diminished. So those are the key features of, of neuroinflammation. So everything slows down, everything becomes less efficient, and the brain fatigues really quickly. And with neuroinflammation, another key feature is that it comes and goes. Some days it's worse, some days it's better, um, but it's not always there all the time. So whenever I, I hear a history of someone telling me that they have brain fog, they can't think, they can't focus, they have episodes of depression, it comes and goes, some days are better than others, and they don't really have any signs of a clear um, neurological disease, then I really start to consider that their blood-brain barrier may be permeable. Now, are there lab tests you can run to determine if someone has blood-brain barrier permeability? And the answer is yes. So. The, the, the most published and well-known lab test or lab marker is a lab marker called S100B. And S100B can be measured as a level or it can be measured as an antibody, but elevation of S100B is associated with blood-brain barrier permeability and breakdown. You can also measure uh, blood-brain barrier protein antibodies. Uh, Cyrix Laboratory does those, for example. And... Um, when in a clinical scenario, when I suspect someone may have so-called blood-brain barrier permeability, I'd like to run um, those markers. Now, also, if someone is suffering from a neurological autoimmune disease, like multiple sclerosis, for example, it's really important to also measure blood-brain barrier antibodies and to determine if there's any blood-brain barrier permeability because uh, circulating antibodies can't really cross the brain uh, until this blood-brain barrier breaks down. And this is also a major concern for people that have gluten sensitivity or celiac disease. So gluten, for example, is a, is a protein that many people that seem to have reactions against, especially what we call modern wheat. Now, if someone's sensitive to gluten, they make antibodies. And those antibodies technically can't get into the brain if the blood-brain barrier is healthy. But if the blood-brain barrier is permeable, 
then those antibodies can cross. And why gluten is a concern is, that, is because gluten has been shown to bind to uh, areas of, of, of the brain called the cerebellum because of a mechanism called molecular mimicry. That means the antibodies produced against gluten can also bind to a structural area of the brain called the cerebellum because the protein structure or amino acid sequence of gluten is very similar to protein structures of different regions of the brain, specifically to astrocytes in the cerebellum and also to neurofilament proteins. So here's a scenario. Someone has gluten sensitivity. Um, they have antibodies to gluten. doesn't really cause any brain issues. But then they have other factors that then start to break down their blood-brain barrier. And then once their blood-brain barrier breaks down, now these antibodies can cross and have an impact on the brain. So, so this is like a clinical scenario where the blood-brain barrier becomes really important. Now, you can also have um, people that have, let's say, high levels of environmental toxic chemicals or toxins in their, in their body, for whatever the reason this may be. And technically, if the blood-brain barrier is intact, they can't cross into the brain. But if the blood-brain barrier becomes permeable, then let's say, you have, let's say you have aluminum in your bloodstream. Then aluminum can cross into the brain. Aluminum can then bind and attach to proteins in the brain. And this is a mechanism where environmental compounds may promote neurodegenerative diseases and be a factor in things like dementia and Alzheimer's. So we know that the, the, the blood-brain barrier is really, really important. Now, the question comes up, is so what can cause the blood-brain barrier to break down and let me give you a list of things but for the most part anything that impacts healthy blood vessel function to the brain or anything that causes chronic inflammation to the brain can cause the blood-brain barrier to break down so remember the blood-brain barrier is basically um, blood cells uh, endothelial cells vascular cells and uh, astroglial cells which are um, these different immune cells of the brain. And these cells are very, very prone to uh, be compromised in chronic states of inflammation. And for the most part, um, chronic inflammatory responses, like a chronic inflammatory disease, uh, like um, lupus or a chronic inflammatory disease, like, in, like uh, um, the systemic rheumatoid disease or, or anything like that has some potential to to break down all barriers of the body, including the uh, gut barrier, lung barrier, and the blood-brain barrier. So in that chronic inflammation is a major, major factor. Um, there's very clear evidence that traumatic brain injuries break down the blood-brain barrier. And when the brain gets injured, um, neurons uh, get get sheared, and the shearing of neurons causes a release of something called heat shock protein, which opens up the blood-brain barrier intentionally to allow immune cells to come in to get rid of the injured and debris neurons, but they don't always heal. So some patients have had a traumatic brain injury or a car accident, and then they notice the brain declines over time, over time because their blood-brain barrier never really heals. So we know that brain injuries can cause it. And we also know that inflammatory bowel diseases, chronic inflammation in the gut can can actually open up the blood-brain barrier. And um, myself and Dr. Bajdani and I, we've published a few studies on this. We published one study in the um, World Journal of Gastroenterology where we showed that when people have intestinal permeability with celiac disease, um, they have increased levels of zonulin, and zonulin also opens up the blood-brain barrier proteins, and we found high degrees of association with um, leaky gut uh, zonulin markers and what are called aquaporin-4, which are blood-brain permeability markers, and uh, glyphibillary protein, which also open up the blood-brain barrier. And then we also uh, published a paper where the title of the paper was called Correlation Between Antibodies to Bacterial Epipolysaccharides, uh, Barrier Proteins, and Sera of Positive ASCANC Patients. It's a long title. But in that paper, we showed people that inflammatory bowel diseases um, have significantly increased odds for having blood-brain barrier permeability. And we checked 400 uh, subjects with that study. So we know that when the gut's inflamed, that the uh, brain is inflamed. And we also know that when there's a leaky gut, there's a very, very high chance that there's also a leaky brain because they share some of the similar 
protein agents like zonulin, which, which opens up the blood-brain barrier. So chronic gut inflammation can lead to chronic brain inflammation. Intestinal permeability can lead to blood-brain barrier permeability. Um, past head traumas, chronic inflammation, chronic infections. Someone who gets their antioxidant levels depleted um, um, can, can really uh, have all these factors add up to cause their blood-brain barrier to break down. Once their blood-brain barrier breaks down, there's an increased activated inflammatory state of the brain, which then causes uh, decrease in brain function, slowness of the brain, and decreased brain endurance. And if this continues on, then a person can start to develop neurodegenerative diseases. Now, there are some also lifestyle factors that have been shown to cause um, blood-brain barrier permeability. Uh, alcohol abuse, uh, unfortunately, has been shown to cause blood-brain barrier permeability. Um, sedentary lifestyles have been shown to increase risk for permeability of the blood-brain barrier. Because when you are sedentary, you get decreased uh, circulation, decreased blood flow, you get decreased release of healthy growth factors in your blood vessels to keep your blood-brain barrier healthy. And uh, when someone combines things like lack of exercise with an inflammatory diet and alcohol, it's very easy for the blood-brain barrier to break down. Chronic sleep disruption has been shown to cause um, blood-brain barrier permeability issues as well. So those are the main lifestyle factors. Now, at the end of the day, um, when you're looking at a person who has, let's say, chronic neuroinflammation and they're dealing with depression and brain fatigue issues and and just inability to uh, finish their tasks and cognitive delays, and they have, for example, let's say, uh, lab tests that show blood-brain barrier permeability, I mean, the goal is how do you treat that and what do you do? So you got to look at the lifestyle factors first, make sure they're not abusing alcohol, make sure they're on an anti-inflammatory diet, make sure that you uh, identify underlying issues, whether it's a, a chronic inflammatory disease or rheumatoid disease, and try to uh, implement strategies to reduce that inflammation. And then there are some nutraceuticals that have been published in the peer-reviewed literature that have been shown to really help the blood-brain barrier. And the... Nutraceuticals with the most evidence so far are number one fish oils. So fish oils have been shown to help the blood-brain barrier. Uh, ginkgo biloba has been shown to help the blood-brain barrier heal. And, and many of these are animal studies, so they can actually look at the blood-brain barrier um, post-mortem and see if that they've healed. Vinpocetine is another botanical that helps increase blood flow to the brain and, per, and protects the vascular system of the brain. Uh, that's been shown to help the blood-brain barrier heal and alpha-lipoic acid, uh, glutathione, and resveratrol. So those are the main cocktails of different flavonoids and compounds that have been really shown uh, to impact the blood-brain barrier. So as, as a summary before we take some questions here is, so what is the blood-brain barrier? The blood-brain barrier is basically a barrier to keep pollutants, toxins, circulating antibodies, dietary proteins away from the brain. And then when the blood-brain barrier becomes compromised, the symptoms are um, decreased neuron speed, decreased nerve conduction, so mental slowness, motor coordination slowness, and then increased fatigue of the brain. And then the way you can measure blood-brain barrier permeability is blood-brain permeability antibodies or S100B levels uh, or S100B antibodies. These are routine lab tests. And... The things that cause the blood-brain barrier to break down could be things like um, traumatic brain injury, uh, long use of corticosteroids, uh, significant infection, significant inflammation, and then lifestyle factors are alcohol, abuse, lack of exercise, sedentary lifestyle, and chronic sleep deprivation, right? And then nutraceuticals, again, fish oils, ginkgo, minpocetine, acetylglutathione. So those are all the main things that can really impact the blood-brain barrier. So let me get into some questions here. Okay. <clears throat> One of the questions I have here is, if a person has transcontaminase 2, will they have leaky gut barriers all over in the body as well? Lung barrier, gut barrier, addition to small intestines. Well, transcontaminase 2, TG2, is an antibody uh, for intestinal permeability. And 
um, not for, I'm sorry, for celiac disease, but there's a high correlation of intestinal permeability up to, let's say, 90% with people that have transcontaminase 2. So we would suspect that if someone has TG2 antibodies, that there's a very high risk for them to also have um, blood-brain barrier permeability, since we know that transcontaminase 2 is strongly associated with intestinal permeability. And this is also a concern because if you do have transcontaminase 2 antibodies, the laboratory marker for celiac disease, then if the blood-brain barrier is breached, then those gluten antibodies uh, can also then cross the brain. And if gluten antibodies cross the brain, there is that potential for gluten to bind to proteins in the brain and cause some neuroinflammation and neurodegeneration. There are multiple studies that have correlated gluten sensitivity, not even celiac disease, but just gluten sensitivity with different types of neurodegenerative and neurological diseases and chronic neuroinflammation. So TG2, uh, celiac disease, gluten sensitivity, you, you're really concerned for blood-brain barrier integrity as well as leaky gut. Okay, someone just, Evelyn said, can you say, um, oh, wait a minute. Can someone type those nutraceuticals you just mentioned? Can you remember, repeat them? Nutraceuticals you just mentioned. Nutraceuticals? Yeah. Uh, fish oils, ginkgo, uh, vinpocetine, spelled V I N P O C E T I N E, alpha lipoic acid, glutathione, and resveratrol. And did you say quercetin? Quercetin? No, I did not say quercetin. Okay. Quercetin may have an effect, but I'm not sure if there's any published studies on that. The ones I the ones I mentioned on that list are clearly shown in studies to have an effect on the blood brain barrier. So that's why I mentioned them. Of okay. course, for the most part, lots of anti-inflammatories, lots of antioxidants can may have some benefits as well. But those are the ones that actually have um, research published on them. Okay. Shelby asks. Can anxiety be associated with blood-brain barrier permeability like depression? What can anxiety be? Well, you know, the thing with anxiety is that there's so many different mechanisms for anxiety. Blood-brain barrier permeability isn't directly associated with causing anxiety. However, you know, there could be inflammatory responses that are that uh, from, from blood-brain barrier permeability that can promote the mechanism of someone's underlying anxiety. But I wouldn't say that you would go from anxiety directly to blood-brain barrier permeability. So it's not that direct. Okay. Um, how does MTH, MTHFR affect this? Oh, that's a good question. Thank you. How does MTH4 affect this? MTH4 is methyltetrahydrofolate reductase polymorphism. It's a genetic uniqueness that 20 25% of the population have where they can't uh, metabolize... Um, homocysteine uh, through B12 very effectively, through folate very effectively. So there is some research on this. And what they have found is that if a person has high homocysteine, and these people that have this genetic, genetic uniqueness typically do, that elevated homocysteine levels can cause increased breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. So I didn't mention that, but thank you for asking that question. So if you ever get your lab test done, um, it's really common these days for, to have your doctor measure something called homocysteine. It's typically done to look at cardiovascular risk because elevated homocysteine destroys blood vessels. But to, don't forget, the blood-brain barrier is also primarily blood vessels and astrocytes. So there has been clear um, findings that elevated homocysteine levels, which is part of a sometimes routine cardiovascular workup, uh, is also associated not only with cardiovascular disease, but breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. So you may have to get your homocysteine levels down, and typically that's done by taking um, B vitamins, specifically folate and B12. Okay. Dean asks, can the blood-brain barrier with supplements be repaired? Yes. So the blood-brain barrier can be repaired. So the blood-brain barrier is dynamic. It breaks down and repairs, breaks down and repairs, just like the gut barrier. Uh, you could have lots of alcohol, lots of inflammatory foods, lots of stress. Your blood brain barrier can, your gut barrier can thin and break down. And then, as you eat healthier foods and take that inflammatory load off your gut, it can heal. The blood brain barrier is dynamic and works in the, in the same way as well. But there's people that have chronic leaky gut for many, many years, and there's people that have chronic leaky brains for many, many years. But the point is that. If the ongoing inflammatory cascade that's promoting the breakdown is continued, then it can't heal. And if you remove those factors and provide high amounts of anti-inflammatories and antioxidant uh, properties to support uh, the barriers, then they can't heal. Okay. Meredith asks, can leaky brain cause sleep disorders? 
So, you know, when you think about like specific conditions with leaky gut, whether it's sleep disorders or um, anxiety, there isn't a direct relationship with any disease uh, or specific brain symptom other than brain endurance issues and, and fatigue issues. However, inflammation adds to the fire most mechanisms that cause disease to the brain or dysfunction to the brain. So uh, like neuroinflammation is going to promote the mechanisms of all neurodegenerative diseases, which are really an inflammatory cascade. Um, some sleep disturbances can be associated with abnormal uh, nerve signaling conduction pathways in parts of the the brain and the pineal system. Inflammation can absolutely uh, disrupt those mechanisms. So it's a it's, it's a very general general mechanism. Um, however, it can disrupt a whole list of uh, physiological pathways in the brain that can cause a whole host of whole host of symptoms. But it's not necessarily specific for any single uh, condition like anxiety or sleep disorders. Okay, Richard asks. Can food sensitivities cause inflammation in the internal and external carotid arteries or any arteries? Food sensitivities. Well, food sensitivities can cause systemic inflammation, and systemic inflammation can definitely cause inflammation everywhere, including blood vessels and uh, the, the gut barrier, the lung barrier. So it has some impact. How, how significant of an impact it has may vary from person to person, and it probably by itself won't be enough to cause all these systems to break down, but uh, but usually when people start to develop food sensitivities, they have really lost something called immune tolerance. So there's already some significant degree in their immune system integrity and their health. So it can, you know, be part of a contributing factor to their overall inflammatory load. Okay, Sharon's asking, what about Huprazine? Huprazine is a very powerful botanical that has been shown to be a natural acetylcholinesterase inhibitor, which is great to activate acetylcholine, and uh, uh, which is a main neurotransmitter for memory pathways and helps helps with uh, things like dementia and Alzheimer's disease. And there's even been some studies that show huprazine um, can slow down beta amyloid plaque development, which is a key feature of, of Alzheimer's disease development. But huprazine does not directly have any benefit that I know of uh, to the blood-brain barrier because it's working more of an um, it's working more on an acetylcholine pathway and blood-brain barrier mechanisms um, or nutraceuticals that help the blood-brain barrier that typically help work on improving vascular inflammation or basic systemic neuroinflammatory responses and and this and hoprazine doesn't seem to have that strong of an effect on those pathways. Okay, Steve asks, does the elevated homocysteine act directly to break down the blood-brain barrier, or could there be co a comorbidity factor that causes both elevated homocysteine and breakdown of blood-brain barrier? Well, there could be other factors associated with why someone has methylation defects causing the blood-brain barrier to break down. Um, so I think those probably do exist uh, to some degree. But homocysteine itself is very inflammatory. And when they've done animal studies and just inject homocysteine into healthy animals, they've done this with initially they did it with pigs in some first uh, length studies. And the, once these pigs got injected with homocysteine, their whole vascular system became inflamed and, and basically destroyed, and many of these animals got strokes immediately. Uh, so, unrelated to methylation defects, homocysteine itself is very inflammatory to blood vessels, and, and blood vessels include the blood-brain barrier. So uh, I think there could be some methylation defects that are part of uh, things that can impact blood-brain barrier integrity. Um, we know we need methylation to help s support myelin regeneration, and methylation is important for astroglial cell function. So there could be a part of the methylation part of it, which is this transfer of one carbon groups. But if homocysteine's high, homocysteine itself is very inflammatory. So that's why if you get your lab work done, uh, if your doctor has measured homocysteine or if you're getting your blood work, ask your doctor to measure homocysteine. And if those levels are elevated, then you could have some breakdown with the, with the blood-brain barrier. Now, let me ask you, let me also share some things about the homocysteine levels. When you get your blood homocysteine levels measured, the laboratory range will usually have levels um, any below 15 as normal. But research is showing that levels, even as they start to get above seven, and definitely as they get into above 10, start to cause significant injury to um, 
neurons and potentially even to the blood-brain barrier. So you really want to make sure at the very least, even if your blood-brain barrier, if your homocysteine levels are um, normal, meaning less than the laboratory range of 15, just make sure they're not above 10. Because if you're in the 10 to 15 range, you still could could have some risk for inflammation, even though your lab test may be within that uh, normal reference range of less than 15. So 10 and above, be, be concerned, and you may want to uh, take some extra antioxidants, nutraceuticals to support yourself. Okay, Jonathan asks, how does insulin resistance relate to neuroinflammation and blood-brain barrier permeability? That's another great question. Good job, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> well, insulin resistance can definitely be a factor in blood-brain permeability and brain inflammation itself. So insulin resistance um, leads to glucose not being able to get into the cell. And when glucose can get into the cell, uh, one of the things that can happen is glucose can get glycated, which means that um, there is an attachment of a protein to a sugar, and this becomes really inflammatory. And these become glycation end products. And glycation end products can cause the blood-brain barrier to also break down, which I didn't mention earlier, so thanks for bringing that up. So if you ever have your blood work done, and if, especially if you have prediabetes, risk for diabetes, um, there's a measurement that's run called HbA1c, which is glycated hemoglobin. And if your glycated hemoglobin levels are elevated, um, those, those, those same mechanisms can definitely break down the blood-brain barrier. So when you look at HbA1c levels, they look at a certain percentage number, and usually you want that you know, in the low 6% number below, below 6% would be ideal. But once people start to get their HbA1c above 6.8, 7% or higher, then there's going to be some significant uh, inflammatory mechanism through glycation that can definitely break down the blood-brain barrier. Okay, Jeffrey asks, brain fog is often said to be a symptom of Hashimoto's thyroiditis. If one has Hashimoto's thyroiditis, does that mean they have a leaky brain as well? Well... Brain fog being a constant, brain fog is only, brain fog itself is most likely due to the neuroinflammation that Hashimoto's patients have. Um, many patients of Hashimoto's have intestinal permeability and absolutely have blood brain barrier permeability. Um, trust me, as a practitioner who's worked a lot with patients suffering from Hashimoto's and who routinely measures um, intestinal barrier proteins and blood brain barrier proteins, um, I can tell you that there's a large percentage of patients that have Hashimoto's that do have blood-brain barrier permeability, and they also have high risk for gluten sensitivity because of their gene type for Hashimoto's, which is the HLA-DQ gene type. And you'll see many Hashimoto's patients that have gluten sensitivity, gluten antibodies, intestinal permeability, and blood-brain barrier permeability, and they just can't get their brain fog and their depression uh, under control and they can, until they can actually heal their barriers. Okay, Rose says, hi. Hi. <laughs> Wondering if there is a way the brain can flush out the impurities on its own. Well, the brain is actually constantly detoxifying itself through its own lymphatic and vascular system. Um, and the best way to get the brain to do that is to actually just move and exercise. So movement and exercise uh, impacts brain circulation and brain lymphatic pathways. And uh, the ways that the brain clears those toxins um, is really through vascular mechanisms. So if you can move and exercise to any degree, that really helps your brain's ability to, to support its lymphatic and vascular flushing systems. Okay, so this is a question from Steve, but it's been asked a lot. The RepairVite product doesn't seem to have fish oils, ginkgo, that kind of stuff, for, recommended for improving the blood-brain barrier. Well, is there a formula for well, blood brain barrier repair formula come out soon. I think they're confusing blood brain barrier with leaky. Yeah, so there's a product called Repairvite, which is an nutraceutical that has things to help leaky gut. Uh, it's really designed for a leaky gut product. But the products, the, the things in there are your typical um, compounds for the gut, like glutamine, for example, to help the gut heal. That doesn't directly impact the blood brain barrier. Things that impact the blood-brain barrier would be more things like resveratrol, glutathione, alpha-lipoic acid, and posatine. Um, I like to take a product called Neuroflam that has all those things in there. 
Uh, but any one of those nutraceuticals alone has the potential to support the blood-brain barrier. Okay. Um, oh, Eric, Eric Cohen asked about Neuroflam. Yeah, Neuroflam is one of the things. It's a product that has uh, the, the key nutraceuticals in there. But the key nutraceuticals already, we've already talked about. To, you know, resveratrol, glutathione, alpha-lipoic acid, ginkgo, and bosatine. Okay. Lori, I gave up gluten and it completely reversed my brain fog. Cool. I was a patient of someone who took your courses, Dr. Geronimo. Oh, Ronald. Oh, yeah. It was a game changer. Great. Thanks. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, some people, you know, they have gluten sensitivity. They gluten. They get zonulin release. They get an inflammatory gut. The blood-brain barrier opens. And sometimes just being gluten-free completely reverses all of it. And there's other people who, for example, may have the same mechanism. They have this significant reaction to gluten. They eat it. They get leaky gut. They get leaky brain. And then they just try to take like ginkgo or alpha lipoic acid. It doesn't really work. And nothing's going to really work until they remove the trigger. So um, got to be aware of that too. Uh, a lot of times you're not going to be able to just heal the blood-brain barrier taking nutraceuticals. You're going to have to treat the underlying mechanisms. So thank you for sharing your story with gluten. And I think that is really common. Um, gluten being gluten, dairy, corn, uh, egg protein, soy protein or the most common uh, food sensitivities out there. And for some people, those inflammatory food reactions, if they continue to eat them, they, they, they can get brain fog. I mean, I have with friends that <laughs> know that testing that comes back that shows they're sensitive to milk. They get bloating and distension. They may even get brain fog. And they still question if they can eat milk because they can, you know, the bloating isn't so bad. They can deal with it. But, uh, uh, it has an impact. So a lot of times taking nutraceutical won't be enough. You'll actually have to remove the trigger and milk, dairy, egg, protein, soy are the most common. And corn. Okay, speaking of that, Lauren asks, what are your thoughts on the use of kefir to restore gut integrity, thus helping the blood-brain barrier? 99% of the lactose will be removed, but it still has whey and casein. Does right. that override the benefits of the probiotic? Right. So kefir is is fantastic for supporting the gut microbiome for, for many people. However, there are people that are extremely sensitive to casein. And uh, for them, the, the benefits do not outweigh the inflammatory response. So for, for people that are extremely sensitive to milk protein whey, um, they probably won't be able to get away with kefir. For those that don't have those extreme reactions, it, it, it could could provide some benefits so so there there has to be some individuality and some respect to how sensitive they are to case and if they can tolerate kefir okay Deidre says is ataxia caused by leaky brain is ataxia caused by leaky brain so there's different causes of ataxia ataxia just means that um, best way to simplify it is that your balance is off and we're talking about truncal ataxia, there's limit ataxia, but truncal ataxia means like you're, you don't have good balance and you have dizziness and a hard time going downstairs. And ataxia can be caused by any injury to an area of the brain called the cerebellum, whether it's a stroke, whether it's traumatic brain injury, whether it's neurodegeneration. But there is a condition that's called gluten ataxia. And this is specifically where people that are gluten sensitive have gluten antibodies bind to that area of the brain, which is called molecular mimicry. So for those people, and there's a subset of those people out there in the population, for those people, they have extreme sensitivity to gluten, and the same genotype of gluten ataxia is found with Hashimoto's people. So I can tell you a lot of people that have thyroid disease, Hashimoto's, have the same genotype and risk factors for gluten, then causing gluten ataxia, and then having this whole neuroinflammatory and even eventually neuroautoimmune response and blood-brain barrier breakdown as a vicious cascade. Okay, so this is a couple of people asking this. Um, they're asking about the proteins, soy, egg, whatever. They're saying, so even the organic is pro-inflammatory, yes. not just GMO, but the actual protein itself. People are thinking that it's... Yeah, so when you look at fruit proteins and immune reactions, um, whether it's organic or not, doesn't matter. Okay. Organic foods have te technically less pesticides, which has a, which is great. You don't want as much pesticides in your foods. But the structure of the food protein, whether there's, whether it's organic or not, is going to determine the immune response. So, um, you know, like in our family, we tried to have everything organic, but it doesn't mean we can have organic wheat and be okay if we're sensitive to gluten or organic, you know, corn or so forth, or, you know, whatever the protein may be. 
So the only thing you're really getting with organic is you're getting um, less pesticide exposure, but the dietary protein is still the same and it can still cause a churr. Okay. I don't know if you answered this wrong. Um, Carol, if a person has TTGT, tissue translaminase, transglutaminase antibodies, will they have leaky barriers all over their body? Did you answer that? Well, the, if people have tissue transcutaminase antibodies, they have leaky barriers all over their body. Um, we, we mentioned transcutaminase 2, the transcutaminase 6 also, which is specific to, to, to uh, brain inflammation. But technically, if you have TG2, transcutaminase 2, transcutaminase 6 antibodies, you have a high risk for blood-brain barrier permeability. Um, some of the TG2 stuff is in the literature. Uh, TG6 uh, is not in the literature yet. But I've done some in-house testing for a research study where we haven't published, but we did find high degrees of correlation between transcontaminase 6 and S100B blood-brain barrier permeability antibodies. Okay, so Genevieve asks, what would be a good differential diagnosis from brain, brain fog from leaky gut or other, than other sources? How do you differentially diagnose if it's... Right. So if someone has like brain fog, the symptoms of just having like uh, slow brain activity, uh, slow motor activity, poor brain endurance, it just just lets you know that there could be neuroinflammation, but it doesn't tell you where it's from. That's that's the that's the key thing. So clinically, you just first go: is there brain fog? And if there's brain fog, you suspect that there's blood brain barrier permeability. But then, quite honestly, you have to go through your history and kind of take some steps and do some trial and error and dig to kind of figure out what the cause may be. Definitely starting with the gut. Gut permeability is a good place since there's a high degree of well-established association with leaky gut and leaky brain. But for the most part, chronic inflammation, anything that uh, drives the inflammatory response, anything that impacts circulation are all uh, clinical mechanisms that can, that can lead to blood-brain barrier permeability and, and neuroinflammation. Okay. Epstein-Barr virus chronic activity affects blood-brain barrier negatively. Alexander Well, if you have if you have, if you have chronic Epstein-Barr virus, the the key thing is has it become reactivated, and if it becomes reactivated, the white blood cells are really really high, monocytes may be really high, and that's an inflammatory cascade. So all inflammatory cascades have the potential to break down all barriers of the body, whether it's the gut barrier, lung barrier, or blood-brain barrier. But, you know, a lot of people just have chronic Epstein-Barr, but the virus itself has not been reactivated. Uh, in a clinical setting, there's, Epstein, there's actually a profile called the Epstein-Barr virus profile, where they measure different proteins of Epstein-Barr to determine if it's been reactivated or if, it's just, or if it has not been. That would really be the test to, to determine if the, the virus has been reactivated. And then if that's the case, then at least you notice some inflammation. Now, inflammation uh, itself can also even cross the blood-brain barrier from viral infection, even if the blood-brain barrier is intact and just cause brain fogginess and dysfunction. I think most people, when they get like influenza or the common cold or I mean common flu, um, they notice that the brain's not working well. They can't think, they can't focus, they can't concentrate. They're actually having brain inflammation to some degree. And in those cases, um, they may have an intact blood-brain barrier. So not... All inflammation is caused by the blood-brain barrier breaking down. You, there are still inflammatory mediators that can cross a healthy blood-brain barrier and cause brain inflammation. So whether it's Epstein-Barr virus or another virus that causes someone to not think or focus or concentrate, that that doesn't necessarily mean that the blood-brain barrier is broken down. Okay, this is a couple of people asking. Um, I'm going to combine them. What are your protocols for lupus, RA, cystic oh. fibrosis? Like. Yeah, I know some people like ask question. You ask questions about like, what are your protocols for lupus or RA or cystic fibrosis? A bunch of yeah. Um, MS. So MS. Yeah. So we don't have protocols. Protocols are a complete, inefficient way. The protocol for a disease doesn't work clinically. You have to have protocols for specific mechanisms. For example, you could have a person that has MS that has blood-brain barrier permeability, and someone who doesn't have blood-brain permeability. You could have a person that has MS who has cross-reactivity with a certain pathogen. Um, for example, hepatitis C can cross-react with myelin, and that's a major trigger for MS, and someone who doesn't, um, sometimes you can't even find the mechanism. So the, the mindset of protocol for disease is inefficient, and this is, this is how functional medicine differs from the world of just 
nutrition and botanicals. In, in, in the field of herbology, you have like a disease, depression, and then you go right to St. John's Wort. In the field of functional medicine, you don't do that. You have yeah you have the word like you have depression. Then you go, what's the mechanism of their depression? Maybe the mechanism of depression is neuroinflammation. Maybe the mechanism of depression is poor blood flow of the brain. Maybe the mechanism of depression is early brain degeneration. So it doesn't necessarily go to a treatment protocol. So it's impossible to to rec- give you treatment protocols, especially in a live Facebook or even even in a, in a real clinical setting for a disease process because the disease itself doesn't dictate treatment. Uh, you have to figure out what mechanisms are involved and what what lifestyle factors involve, and, and this is the basic concept of personalized lifestyle medicine. And chronic diseases and progressive diseases um, really uh, need to have that individualized approach to to try to improve health and function and recovery uh, in those instances. Okay, Stephanie says you do an amazing job of taking intricate concepts and explaining them in such a clear way. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Stephanie. Welcome. That was okay. nice. That was very nice. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, Owen, can thyroid or other hormonal imbalances lead to blood brain barrier permeability? Yes. So I didn't mention that either. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone knows the answers. They're just making me look bad. <laughs> it's a lot to talk about. Yeah. So yes, hormone deficiencies can impact permeability of the blood brain barrier and of the gut. Thyroid hormones is absolutely one of them. So if someone is, for example, truly hypothyroid and they actually have high TSH, um, that can impact permeability of the gut barrier, the lung barrier, uh, the blood-brain barrier. So hormones like testosterone for men, estrogen for women, progesterone, um, thyroid hormones, if they become depleted, they can, inc- they can slow down how cells regenerate and, the, and, and barrier cells of the gut, the brain, the lungs, all um, all benefit from hormones that cause an anabolic effect or a tissue regeneration effect. So they can be a player as well. Okay. Um, Elizabeth, she's asking, what are what are the zonulin markers? Is it lymphocytes? So the, the markers for zonulin is actually, zonulin is a protein and uh, it's actually haptoglobulin too. It's a protein that can be measured in blood. Um, blood levels of zonulin tend to fluctuate all over the place, um, but zonulin antibodies are a very good marker to determine permeability of the gut brain barrier, the the gut barrier, and also even potentially the blood brain barrier. So uh, it's just a, just a routine laboratory marker that can be measured. Um, the main proteins for the brain are blood brain barrier proteins are. S100B, uh, aquaporin uh, antibodies, specifically aquaporin-4, and even just what we call blood-brain barrier protein antibody. And there's also a high association with uh, antibody to um, glial fibrillary acidic protein, which is involved specifically with astrocytes. If it's elevated, it can indicate the blood-brain barrier is breaking down. So those are all individual lab tests that can be ordered in a clinical setting and have been used in research settings to determine breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. Okay, so people people asking, are there certain foods to avoid in general that cross-react with the blood-brain barrier and cause a breakdown? So there's no foods that specifically we know about cross-react directly with the blood-brain barrier. We just know that there's foods, there. the concern is that the blood-brain barrier breaks down and then food proteins cross into the brain and then what you're concerned about are food proteins that cross-react with actual neurons. And I get, gotta tell you the two big ones are milk protein and wheat. Casein, milk protein, casein, and, and, and gluten have, have potential to cross-react. Um, there was a study that we published in the journal Nutrients where we looked at 400 healthy blood donors and we checked their reactions to milk and wheat proteins. And then we wanted to see how many of them had neuroinflammatory reactions, specifically to myelin by measuring myelin, uh, basic protein, myeloglobinogenic protein. We found a very, very high degree of association between people that had reactions to milk and wheat proteins to brain inflammation proteins like myelin basic protein. So we published that in the journal Nutrients. If you go to uh, pubmed.gov, which is the uh, National Library of Medicine, if you type in my name, uh, you'll see some of these papers that I published. And the one um, that is published in the journal Nutrients 
uh, we find that those two proteins are significantly inflammatory for the brain. Okay. Uh, Genevieve and a few other people are saying, will you please do a talk crud, on how to treat these chronic viral infections, Epstein-Barr, Hep C, et cetera? Sure. We can, we can put that on the list. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, dun, dun, dun. Is, Elizabeth says, is there a celiac profile like the Epstein-Barr profile? Is there the best the best laboratory marker for looking at gluten sensitivity and celiac is without question Cyrex array number three, and what Cyrex array number three does is it breaks down the transcontaminase proteins. So There's TG two, TG two bound to gliadin, TG uh, three, and TG six, which are all important for understanding where the gluten sensitivity or autoimmune response is against. But also, when you look at gluten, gluten has different branches, like alpha-gliadin and gamma-gliadin and different variations of those, and gluteomorphin, and so forth. Um, so the absolute best laboratory marker to de determine reactivities to gluten is Cyrex array number three. There's no substitute. Okay, besides that, Sharon asks, how do we know if we have a reaction to gluten or casein? How do you know if you have a oh, reaction? Oh, how do you know if you have a reaction to gluten or casein? You measure the, you measure the antibody. So you have to do a, a lab test, uh, an antibody test, a lysa test. Um, most people will just refer to as a food sensitivity test to determine if those reactions are there. And I would caution you guys to stay away from like finger, finger spot testing. Uh, those are not as accurate. I mean, a really good blood draw by a accredited laboratory would be to go. Let me let me kind of make the analogy for blood spot testing. If you ever like listen to the radio and you're not really tuned into the radio station, so you can't pick up every word and you can't pick up everything that's said, but you can pick up a few of those things. That's how sp spot testing is. It'll pick up a few things, but you don't really get clear messages and testing of the proteins. When you get a full solid blood draw done by a clear established laboratory, it's like you have tuned into the radio station, perfect sound, and you can hear every single word and hear the message. When you do some of these spot testing, the methodology is not as clean, so you don't get as, as clear of the reactions to food proteins. Okay. Um, this is people thanking you. Sorry. Oh, thank you. Um, very, very kind. Thank you. Thank you. Um, do elevated alpha, beta, Tubulin antibodies have anything to do with leaky gut? So alpha-beta tubulin antibodies are specifically associated with neuro, uh, neurological autoimmune reactivity. Alpha-beta tubulin is a protein in the structure of neurons. With the antibodies against it, that means there is neurological autoimmunity. It's not specific for anything to do with leaky gut. It's very specific for just neurological autoimmunity. Now, if you have neurological autoimmunity or someone has alpha-beta tubulin antibodies, you definitely want to make sure the gut barrier is intact and the blood-brain barrier is intact. So you might want to look at zonulin, including antibodies for the gut. You want to look at blood-brain barrier protein antibodies for the brain and make sure that those are not abnormal. And if they are, then, then figure out how to fix those. Okay. Um, this is a little off, but Kate is saying, I had a test for Hashimoto's that tested antibodies. What other antibody tests can be given to determine if you have an autoimmune disease? And why would you test those? Right. So if you so if you have Hashimoto's and you've been tested, if if you have antibodies for the thyroid, you know, for me in my practice, um, that's all I can really comment on. I like to use a panel from a lab called from lab from lab called Cyrex called the Ray Number Five. And what it does is screens for tissue antibodies to twenty other different tissues. So it checks for antibodies to the gut, to the adrenal glands, to the pancreas, to the brain, um, to the joints. And it lets me know if there's any other autoimmune activities going there. So my routine step in my practice is if someone walks into my office that has, for example, Hashimoto's or any other autoimmune disease, is then have them do Cyrex Ray 5, and then I can see if there's any other autoimmune reactions anywhere else. And that's kind of how I have been doing it. Uh, Steve is uh, quoting some of your books, answering questions, and this is oh. funny. Sorry. So thank you, Steve, for using your books too. Thank you. Yeah, that's funny. Um, do you think evaluation of the blood-brain barrier should be done always in the initial workup of patients with neurodegenerative disease? That's from Sebastian. So Sebastian asks, should, I, should you always do blood-brain barrier workup for all neurodegenerative diseases? Um, that, well, ideally, yes, but realistically, no. Ideally, yes, because you like to have the information. Realistically, no, is because there's always the factor of expense. Um, you know, you can't test every single marker with every single patient 
uh, sometimes you have to pick and choose one of the most appropriate ones or have a have a uh, you know have a budget and a process step by step of how you go and deep go through things but technically Yes, if you, if you have anyone that has any neuroinflammation, neurogen disease, traumatic brain injury, brain fog, it would be, always be nice to to check for blood brain barrier permeability and determine if that's a factor in their in their in their health. Okay, Satomy, I think says is intermittent fasting on thyroid patients okay? Yes, intermittent fasting on thyroid patients should be okay as long as they can uh, physiologically not completely fall apart <laughs> while they do the intermittent fasting phase of it. So they can do intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting can get a person into ketosis. And ketosis has actually can actually help, also help heal the blood-brain barrier. Uh, ketosis creates an anti-inflammatory effect and dampens neuroglial inflammation and drops insulin levels significantly. Uh, both those mechanisms can have a traumatic impact on helping heal blood-brain barriers and brain inflammation also. So that's another good strategy that can be used that wasn't mentioned. Okay, um, a couple more. Any connection with autism and blood-brain barrier? Any connection with autism blood-brain barrier, yes. <laughs> There's definitely a factor of brain inflammation or inflammation with uh, the pathophysiology of autism. Obviously, autism is 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 yeah multifactorial multiple multiple variants that are involved at the end of the day there is a central theme of neuroinflammation there and and blood brain permeability does play a role in some models of 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 uh, autism okay valerie's asking is there can you please or is there somewhere do you summarize your list on where the blood tests one should have at the minimum done every year, meaning from there. Oh, well, that's doctor. really good. Um, and when Hashimoto's patient who has been on thyroid meds, and also for someone who's Hashimoto has been on thyroid meds, but just general, what you should be running every year. What you should be running every year. Okay. When you go to your physician and you tell them, I need this done. You might need to write that down. Yeah, that's a good article to write. Thank you for sharing that. Maybe we can write that article Valerie. from Dr. K News, Valerie. I can just tell you at the very least, um, a routine blood work with that question is something that gets overlooked all the time, isn't done. But getting what's called a chemistry profile, where they just look at like BUN, creatinine, uh, and your electrolytes, phosphorus, nutricils, SUT, SUT, but a chemistry profile, chemistry panel, um, like a chem, chem 24, uh, complete blood count, um, basic thyroid panel, uh, lipid panel, thyroid, those are all just on a routine exam, so important. Blood pressure measurement is so important. And then you can go deeper and check immune markers and get into the gut and check a gut barrier profile and microbiome testing. And, you know, it really comes to the budget of what, what, what's involved. But I can tell you, for, for me in my practice um, and for myself and for my family, we at least do routine lab work every year. And, the, and, and uh, that just includes the markers I, I stated to you. And it also includes... Uh, a, an immune profile, a TNB cell breakdown, because you really want to see if there's any underlying immune activation triggers. And looking at individual TNB cell profiles can give you clues for early malignancy or early autoimmune diseases. But I think you brought up a really good question that we'll probably need to write an article on. So we do write articles all the time. If you go to Dr. K News, drknws.com, uh, on our website. Say that again. Dr. K News. D-R-K-N-E-W-S dot com. Because people ask, so I couldn't understand. I know, I slur and speak fast. I apologize. <laughs> but uh, but give us a little bit of time. Maybe we should, we'll organize that, or maybe we'll do a talk on that. That's but, great, yeah. But uh, next week, we're going to do a talk on the lung barrier, I believe, and then the gut barrier, and kind of go over some more of the research between those the, those other barriers as well. Thank you. I have one more question. Last it's question. Actually, yeah, it's okay. kind of it's interesting. From Deirdre. Okay. okay, what difference does it make in treatment if you already have Hashimoto's and you find other autoimmune conditions after doing the Cyrus Array 5? Like, how would your difference, what, 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 why would right. you? Right, so the question that's being asked is, so, so we have Hashimoto's and now you find other antibodies. Okay. What, what, how does that actually change your treatment? Well, in some sense, you're right that at the end of the day, you have to keep your autoimmune under control. The way, the way it technically changes your treatment is... 
there could be other cross-reactive food proteins and pathogens with different target proteins. For example, if you have myelin or um, ASCA antibodies or tropomyosin. So for example, if you have tropomyosin antibodies, which is a marker for intestinal autoimmune disease, they found shrimp proteins directly cross-react. So you could have significant inflammatory reactions with specific cross-reactive foods like, like shrimp protein. You can find all of this information and more at drknews.com slash podcast. There you'll find the show notes, readings, and links related to this episode. You can also find Dr. Karazian's blog at drknews.com. The best thing to do is sign up for his weekly newsletter, where he will update you on the latest research and clinical strategies related to chronic and autoimmune health conditions. On social, you can find him on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest with the username Datis Karazian. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. And note, no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not delay or disregard obtaining medical advice for any medical conditions they have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. To learn more about Dr. Karazian's disclosures and the companies he advises, please visit drknews.com forward slash about.